is correct. Hi, everyone. I'm Bill Coffin, and welcome to Moments of Truth, the show about my favorite moments from my favorite things. And today, we'll be discussing the greatest adventure hero of all time, Indiana Jones. The serial films of the 1930s and 40s often featured a certain kind of two-fisted hero who traveled the world, getting into dangerous adventures, giving snarling bad guys the what for, making daring escapes, and enjoying a little romance on the side. It was the kind of hero that filmmaker George Lucas grew up on when he was a kid, and in the early 1970s, he began creating a modern version of that archetype. But Lucas shelved the idea so he could focus on a story that took place a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. And he wouldn't come back to that until 1980 or so. That's when he bumped into fellow filmmaker Steven Spielberg while they were both on vacation and in between projects. Lucas's old hero came up once again, and he and Spielberg finished fleshing him out. The result was Indiana Jones, the now legendary archaeology professor who spent more time in the field than in the classroom and who seemed more at home wielding a revolver than a textbook. With his trademark fedora, leather jacket, satchel, and bullwhip, not to mention a dry wit, crippling fear of snakes, and the ability to absorb incredible punishment, Indy would solve ancient mysteries and save the day in a franchise that would span movies, television, video games, comic books, role-playing games, amusement park attractions, unforgettable theme music, and more. Indy's first adventure, Raiders of the Lost Ark, is widely considered to be one of the greatest movies ever made, and Indy himself has been listed as one of the most endearing film heroes of all time. With his unique blend of heroism and humanity, Indy may be a pretty terrible archaeologist, but he has proven to be an outstanding ambassador for archaeology itself. He's an influential figure that has inspired numerous other heroes who all, in their own way, seek to embody what comes to Indy naturally, a deep knowledge for the ancient and the obscure, a thirst to discover the unknown, a willingness to see for oneself what others only read about in books, and perhaps most importantly, a sense of right and wrong that always puts him on a collision course with bad guys who aren't just on the wrong side of history, but who are an affront to the very notion of it. I grew up in a world where action and adventure were repeatedly redefined by the exploits of Dr. Jones, and it's why I'm so excited to take a deep dive into his legacy and why this character doesn't just have a single moment of truth, but is a one-man factory of them. With me today is Jovitos cultural liaison, Chris Crenshaw. Hola, amigos. <laughs> Club Obi-Wan social director, Tom Hespos. Hello, hello. <laughs> and Knight of the Cruciform Cross, Joe Pace. You have chosen wisely. <laughs> Everyone, welcome. So, Chris, let's start with you, because I know your moment of truth comes from Raiders of the Lost Ark, which is not just the greatest adventure movie ever made, but let's, cards on the table, one of the greatest movies ever made, period. I mean, period. there is not a wasted frame in that movie. It is one of the closest things I can come to as a, just a perfect movie. Whether or not you're a fan of the genre, the movie it does what it means to do so flawlessly. It's just, it's a marvel to me. And it is a movie that is just as exciting now as it ever was back when it came out. A thousand years from now, when future archaeologists are sifting through the ruins of our civilization and come across this movie, they're going to go, man, do you see what they made back then? This is awesome. So I'm really excited to hear what your moment of truth is from Raiders of the Lost Ark. This is where it all begins. It's the cornerstone of this whole thing. And uh, I'm eager to talk about it. So, so what's your moment of truth from Raiders? Bill, I feel like my my answer is going to be a little bit pat, but it's the opening scene. From the moment the Paramount Mountain fades into that peak or outcropping in South America, 1936, you are introduced to this character who you do not see from, you don't see his face. You see him from behind, solely 
for no less than three minutes of this film. He's trekking through the jungle. You 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 learn that he's careful and and he's knowledgeable. He's clearly not a native, but the natives are looking to him as the authority in this environment. And it's not until one of his porters reaches into his belt and pulls out a pistol and cocks it that we see in his face. We learn that he's alert. He goes around, pulls out a bullwhip, just uh, rips the, uh, the gun out of the guy's hand, and the problem is over. The guy takes off. Indy is, uh, his minimum force is effective, he's resourceful, and wow, he's also pretty good looking, turns out. That whole scene, it goes forward, you know, through the, the, the presumably Incan ruins, the traps and, and whatnot, and, you know, each step of the way, a little bit more is revealed about this guy, and that doesn't stop going really until halfway through this movie. We find out all these things about his, his sort of action-y persona. And then all of a sudden, we're back at, uh, what is it, Yale, Harvard? Uh, and, and he's a professor, and, and, and all his students are in love with him. And his office hours are mobbed, and even dudes leave him apples. He's, right. he, he actually he's, leaves an apple in the corner of the desk, which is yeah. such a great scene. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> and... We move on to see him in, in Tibet and or Nepal. There he's this mysterious figure who has a troubling past with this character, Marion. This guy, <laughs> he's so he's so layered. He's so archetypal, yes, but I don't I don't know. He 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 doesn't come across as simply a cutout to me. He's too funny for that. And and I love the way that Indies action persona is so tied into his book knowledge. The trap with the beam of light and the spears. What in the world? You can't anticipate that. How could they do that? Yeah. He has, read, about he has read about it. Yeah. <laughs> and this is a guy who does his homework so well. It saves it. It saves his life every time. Yeah. He read about it at the University of Chicago. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, throughout this movie, which, you know, Bill, uh, I want to wrap up quickly so we can all share what, what we love so much about it. Throughout the movie, you see his knowledge being a driving force in what's happening on the screen in this, you know, awesome, fun action. Yeah. The guys from the U.S. government come and he's able to just like pull up a, a Bible off, off of the, the lectern and open it up to uh, the illustration clearly drawn by a comic book artist. Did you guys uh, do your homework? Did you guys go to Sunday school? <laughs> Did you guys yeah, school? Go to Sunday school. Yeah, exactly. And, <laughs> You know, at the end of the movie, his life is saved only because he had read the Bible yeah. and understood it. Yeah. Those passages in the King James aren't super clear. Yeah. And, you know, as, as, they, are, as a, they are to him. As a kid, I hand waved it all. Like, that must be what is in the Bible, although I had read the Bible. Like, <laughs> I didn't. Yeah. I went back and. Actually, all the things he said about, you know, the, the army being invincible, that, that's all yeah. kind of supported by the Bible. It, it, it's a testament to the writing of the film, of course, but also to the character. He's, yeah. he, he, has, he has done his homework. It goes beyond just the homework because 
in his mastery of the source material, he's showing a deep respect for the things he's learning about, even though he goes yes. bombing through temples and causes mass collateral damage and is looting places. <laughs> like at one point when, when Mark is like, yeah, so I'm sure that everything you do, you know, abides by the treaty for the protection right. of historic antiquities. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's like, it's like they, they know you're looting, you're tomb robbing, that's what you do, but it's okay because going to a museum, even when you account for all that, the reality is that Indy reads the stuff, he honors it and he accepts it and he takes it at face value. He's not just looking at it as an instruction manual to get something shiny. He's like, no, no, like this stuff matters. And when it matters most, it saves his life because he knows how to how to address it and, and, and give it the respect it's due. And you see his his rivals and the bad guys, they don't, and they pay dearly for it, which is kind of- But a he, cool studied, he studied under Abner Ravenwood and he learned both a respect for antiquity and- to do your homework. Frankly, we're a little suspicious of Ravenwood ourselves being so prominently mentioned in a Nazi communique. I just, <laughs> <laughs> I just want to put that and out there. The dude had no clue about his daughter in Indy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, his daughter so. who's older than we think. Let's be clear. <laughs> oh man. So I gotta say, this is just a grand introduction to his character. So every time he's doing something new, we're learning something more about him, which is such a joy to this movie is that the whole thing is undiscovered country, right? So we don't know what to expect next and what he can do. And that's why it's so, so much fun. We get to see he's got humor, he's got wit and all these things and everything is kind of a new experience from the very beginning to the very end of the movie. And yeah, I think it's an awful lot of fun to see that unveil itself. But I have to tell you, when you mentioned the opening scene, that temple scene is, for my money, the most perfect, the most awesome, the most well-done single action sequence ever put on a screen in human history. Okay? It would be hard to argue that. I mean, I was sharing a story. This would be my essential moment of truth for this particular movie, which is this movie came out in 1981. So I was 11 years old when I saw it. When my son turned 11, I was like, right, you're as old as I was. Dude, I got to show you this movie. You're going to love it. He's like, what is this? I'm like... It's a movie I grew up on. Immediately, he was a little suspect. I'm like, I know. Just sit down. Just give me 10 minutes. 10 minutes. He goes, okay, fine. I put it on. And we're watching. And like, within moments, he's like, what's going on? (gasps) And I'm watching him as I'm watching this movie. And two magical things happened. All right. The first was, I got to watch the movie again for the first time. Watching it with my son, who was watching for the first time. For a movie I had seen dozens of times and can recite by heart to have the closest thing to seeing it again with a fresh set of eyes was utterly wonderful. And to anybody out there who can introduce movies they love to new audience members, that's such a fun thing to do. And I'm such a big fan of it. And I got to do it with my son with this movie and it was an enormously fun experience. The other thing though, is watching him go through just the visceral thrills and chills of the opening scene. I mean, every beat that landed hit him like a ton of bricks. Like, it's like, what? It's like, you know, the light trap. Oh my God, there's, there's Forrestal, you know? And it's, oh my God, there's- it. Yeah, it's where he cashed in. Like, oh, there, you know, it's like, you know, there are the spiders on his back. <gasps> you know, it's like, oh, oh my gosh. It's like, it's like, <laughs> right, he's walking, he's like, he's like, oh no. Here are the flying barbs. You can tell he's like, oh dad, he's weighing the sand against the, against the, the, the idol. He's like, <gasps> he's like, he did it, he did it. <gasps> he didn't do it. <laughs> like he's running. He's like, oh, there's no. no way that there's no way sand weighs that much. No, not really. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, although it's not pure gold, we know that. <laughs> I don't know. It's gold. It's gold plated. But 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 the point is that every impact this scene wanted you to have, oh. I saw it land flush with my kid. And by the time it was all over, I mean, I mean, at the end, you know, Indy gets in the biplane, flies off in the sunset, and. It was at that moment, my son sits back. He's like, whew, dad, that was awesome. And I'm like, dude, 
that's the opening scene. He goes, what? You're I'm just like, no, started. like there's another hour, 50 minutes of this. He's like, I can't take it. And he left the room. Like he was like, <laughs> he, was not, he wasn't ready for it. And I'm like, it'll be here when you get back, dude. That's how good that opening scene is. And honestly, yes. I say that about this movie, but that scene in particular, it, it's so great. It's so outside of a temporal context, really, because it's a 1980s version, 1930s version that never really existed. It's just this thing that it will be perfect forever. It'll, that'll never not be just a remarkable scene. But you get a couple of things in that scene. You get uh, Kasdan's cinematography, right? Where you get like this sweeping celluloid, beautiful colors, right? It starts with black and white and goes into this, this really sumptuous world. And you know that you're getting into something that is both the, the pulp dime novel, just beauty. But you also get the first strains of John Williams's effort. Now we've had Star Wars and we've had Jaws from John Williams, but this is when John Williams becomes John Williams. This is when we get the most iconic character sequence in movie music that will ever exist, right? We get the first strains. The low melody of him going through and the, the, the mounting tension of him going into the temple. Once he starts running from the Juvitos and we get the and he's running <laughs> and then, plucking and then, strings right yeah. exactly it's perfect and he gets into the plane with Jacques and he hates snakes but the all of a sudden we get this swell of his theme and he's off and going and yeah. here he is he's Indiana Jones and the guy just is gonna bounce from yeah. one adventure to the next and we have the music to prove it and and what I love most about that scene to, to, to Chris's scene is we have this guy who knows how to hold up a club to block the arrow. We know a guy, but the guy is not perfect. The guy makes mistakes. Yeah. The guy, yeah. the guy screws up, and the guy gets through by the skin of his teeth. And 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 he's so accessible. Yeah. Yes. We can Absolutely. see ourselves inside of this guy who, oh, he swings across it, but the branch breaks, and I only grab it by this by by, yeah. you know, and then I'm running, and oh my god, the guys are shooting at me, and I hate yeah. snakes. And there's such a humanity to Indiana Jones that he is this impenetrable, yeah. bulletproof character who's going to get through, but he's going to do it in a way that we can identify with. And that is, to me, the enduring beauty of the Indiana Jones character is he is, he's smart, he's tough, he's resilient, he's all of these things, but he's also so deeply human. And that makes it such perfect, perfect character. The opening scene, you're seeing his skills on full display. And what does it get him? It gets him right at the foot of his arch nemesis who just takes things away from him. And like, it just, his, his victory goes to defeat in the turn of a moment. Like this is his life. It happens. And you get the sense this happens. He's used kind to of, it. It's not the first time, not the first time. Belosh. <laughs> <laughs> I think all they call him Belosh. Happen again. Yeah. <laughs> I want to add one more thing about this scene. I saw it in the theater at 10 years old. And as far as I was concerned, this was a horror movie. It was scary. I was almost terrified at 10 years old seeing this in theater. It was the definition of chills and thrills, this, this film. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean, if there, the thing that I remember coming out of this film, which was, you know, another one that I, I saw with my dad. So, you know, the, there's a short list of films I saw with my dad, and they're all very special to me because of that. The one thing I remember, you know, of course, there's all the scenes in the movie, but I remember how I felt 
coming out of the movie theater when you go out that exit and the sun you know comes in and you're like you're already dazed i just kept thinking about i just literally had my mind blown that that, that was scary i just watched some guy's face melt off and a bunch of skulls explode <laughs> overwhelmed me and like that yeah. feeling of being overwhelmed coming out of the theater is a thing that really really stays with me oh my god <laughs> that feeling does not happen to me often star wars gave it to me i would say there's probably a dozen movies in my movie going history where i walked out feeling well and truly overwhelmed right and they're not all just movies from my young from my childhood there are movies i've seen recently sure. that i walked out and it was just like my mind just reeled i was so blown away by what i had just seen but Raiders was certainly one of them. In fact, Raiders so blew me away. And talking about like, there's some creepiness to it. I remember I went into it cold. I had no idea what it was about. I was going with friends of the family who were older than me who knew what it was about. I saw one glimpse of the trailer enough to think, what, is this about cowboys or something? Because I saw the fedora hat and I, I had no clue what it was all about and was not prepared for what awaited me. I was just completely blown to smithereens. And I was so blown to smithereens. Like when I came out of Star Wars or something like that, I wanted to play the game, right? Because in an age when you didn't have home video, you relive these things by buying the merchandise or you just went home and you played the game. Like, oh, let's play Star Wars. Let's play this or play that. We didn't, like me and my friends, we didn't play Indiana Jones because none of us actually really wanted to be Indiana Jones because oh, Indiana God, Jones did. did no, see, for me, it was he did some scary stuff. I mean, we loved him, superhero. Plus, also, the problem is there's only one indie, right? Like, who else are you going to? We're not going to play indie so I can be Sala. Come on now. And he's second best. I mean, Sala's pretty <laughs> awesome, but still. Yeah. The thing is, indie has these great adventures, but they ultimately bring you someplace really scary and horrifying. You're dealing with powers beyond mortal reckoning. And as a kid, that's very powerful. You know, as an adult, it's powerful. But as a kid, I was like, man. It took me a long time to watch this movie and to get to the end and not kind of hide my eyes a little bit. Like when I, even when I know it's coming out of that arc, my skin would crawl and I, oh, I'm not ready for this. It's just one of those things. It has that power, you know? I carried that into like adulthood even. Yeah. I, I'm not ashamed to admit. It took me a <laughs> while to watch that face melting scene and like yeah. finally did again. And I'm like, oh, that's it. That hitting you as a kid and you're not yeah. expecting that. You're like, whoa. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we get back again to you guys being a little bit older than me. I, I didn't see Raiders in the, in the theater. I, I, I saw my first theater experience was Temple of Doom. And I was, I don't know, nine, I think. Mm -hmm. And going to see that. And then watching, and I knew there had been Raiders. And I, largely because I had read a Starlog magazine, which was the extent of, it was like the subreddit <sighs> of the 80s. Long live and, Starlog magazine. Right? All I have there to was say. a Starlog. I still <laughs> have a Starlog from the early 80s about how they did the makeup on Raiders. Yeah. Yeah, that was my exposure to Raiders. Was how Toe had his face melt and all this other stuff, and it was like, oh, okay, there's a special effects, and then going in to see, going in to see Temple. I, I saw Temple before I saw Raiders on VHS. Raiders is the first movie I ever watched where people applauded in the middle of the movie. It was actually at the end of the temple scene. I remember like people, you know, all this thing happened. Finally, you know, gets into the plane, plane takes off. That's when you first hear the dun 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 dun, 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 dun. And it happened, yeah, yeah. audience spontaneously busted out in applause. They're like, Aah! they're just like so into it. And I was like, what's going on? It was, it's a great movie, but I remember I had like a special cinematic experience seeing it for the first time on the screen. It was neat to be amongst that. Uh, and that is one thing about seeing movies in the theater is that when you have those moments where the audience gets into it, there's nothing quite so great as a wonderful movie that's being fully 
just completely vocally enjoyed by the audience around you. Shared I, I, experience. I, yeah, I get a lot of energy off of that. I love it when it happens. It's pretty rare. It's pretty uncommon. When it happens, it's great. It does. It happened with me with Raiders. So maybe because I'm a Southerner, that it, that never happened to me as a kid. Really, people just don't talk in the theater. They, they, they don't. No, no. <laughs> for me, for me, it was a matter of it was only it had to be a truly extraordinary movie to really get that kind of result out of people right off the bat. The only example of movies that was kind of a commonplace and generally speaking talking in the movies is rude right it's really not yeah. cool but when people are like yeah and they, they clap that that's something a little bit different sure joe was talking about how this is like a very human hero and there are certain conventions of indie as a hero and just the kind of story that this was that really along those lines really knocked me out and there are two things that i noticed there is a a constant sense of almost whimsical misdirection to these movies. Uh, you see it a lot in Raiders, right? Things where a scene should go one way and they just purposely subvert it and go another way just to keep you on your toes. Perhaps the most famous example is that legendary moment in the street fight in Cairo where and he's all of a sudden he comes across and there's that sub-boss swordsman. All of a sudden there's different music, the crowd parts, there's this guy in this black robes, like this massive scimitar, like ha, swings it around and everything. And what does Indy do? He doesn't get into a big fight. He just like, he just has this like, oh, he just grabs his pistol, shoots him, puts away and moves on to the rest of the scene, you know? And I mean, the audience goes crazy for that, but that's like, nobody had ever done something like that where they, just, they took the wind out of their own genre convention so fully and it was so brilliantly done. My understanding is that that was when like apparently Harrison Ford was running like 105 degree temperature. He was. And, no, 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 no. and they had a whole fight scene scheduled and they're like, they did. can't do it. All right, yeah. well, I'll just shoot him. And yeah. it was, it was... <laughs> right. But the thing is that happens elsewhere in the movie. Not, not necessarily scenes that were done in a different way because they couldn't practically shoot them. Another good example would be when Marion is in the tent with Belloc out in Cairo. She's been captured and they're hanging on. And then Tote and his flunkies walk in, right? Like, uh-oh, we've seen this guy before. He's a Nazi henchman. He's the guy who's a bad dude. Last time we saw him, he was trying to put a, a white hot poker on Marion's face to get her to talk. Something bad's going to happen. And he pulls out of his coat this, like, this little thing. Yeah. Ching, it looks like a sort of like mini nunchaku. Like, <laughs> oh, what's he going to do? Yeah, and this ninja mm-hmm. thing. And then he just turns around and it's just a, it's just a, a portable coat hanger. He puts his leather coat on. And everyone's like, that's oh. time has passed. <laughs> yeah, but everybody, like, they didn't have to give us that. They didn't have to do, they just did that just to subvert our attention, you know? The movie's always going this a little bit sideways. And I love that. And they do that in the other movies too, but you really see it in Raiders. And it's just, it adds this great off-kilter quality to it because you're never quite sure what's going to happen next because it doesn't, you know? Actually, yes. But also it clings bitterly to those stereotypes. In every one of these movies, there is a mile-long clip that has no right existing in the setting. <laughs> Every one of them. True, yes. <laughs> and, and and somebody falls off it. Yeah. And somebody dies off-screen. Yeah. And, well, generally off-screen. It's the funniest thing. I, it, it makes me happy watching it because yeah. it's just like, yeah. I don't care. This needs to happen. Yeah, we need a dramatic fall for bad guys. Like, yeah. there's, there are certain levels of bad guy dispatching, right? And one of them is vehicular careening off an endless precipice. Like, you've been condemned to eternal falling. Goodbye. Gravity will take but care let's of be, you. But let's be, on, let, let's be clear that, that Indiana Jones is an amalgam of a variety of cinematic tropes, but none more so than Rhett Butler, right? I mean, the guy is he's the lovable rogue who is competent and yet is constantly flummoxed by adversaries or the opposite yeah. sex or circumstances and we all want to be him because we all want to be that guy who 
He swims those waters. There is always a scene in these movies as well. And again, you see it a couple different times in Raiders where Indy is in a place where he cannot get out of peril himself. Some external thing has to save him. And sometimes it's a friend that comes in and helps him, or sometimes it's somebody else. Or dumb luck. Saw like grabs the poison date before before Indy eats it. Bad um, dates. Bad dates. Um, which I've quoted that so many times when I've like thrown away food at suspect, just go bad dates. And, <laughs> you know. Um, Gimli doesn't like bad dates. He doesn't, you know. In that outstanding gunfight and fist fight in the bar in Nepal in Marion's place. Oh I mean, my which gosh. Is, which is, I mean, honestly, oh my gosh. such a great scene. That scene is, I mean, oh God, it's so good. Whiskey. Um, whiskey. Yeah, right. And then the point where like, he's dead to rights and also, you know, Marion shoots the other guy from, from behind. Like, it, like Indy's number was up, right? And we see that, or like, or like when Indy's like getting ready to get himself killed in that bar because he thinks Marion's dead and all of a sudden Sala's brood of kids come in and save him. You know, it's like, yeah. you know, next time let's go, let's go meet him together. Yeah, right. It's it's that sort of stuff happens to him, and I love that. We all know in our hearts that no matter even on your best day, you still need your friends to back you up to, in something. And oh, and, absolutely, yeah. And I love that that used to happen. You know, that happened to him like throughout all the films. Like the thing that I love about that is, you know, it, it really makes you imagine like a richer history for Indiana Jones because you keep you know running into all these people who you know, will help him out and, and, and get him out of danger. Look at the first scene in Temple of Doom. You know, you get this yes, waiter yes. who, you know, like, Jimmy, you're like, yeah. when he finishes his dialogue, you're like, what kind of adventures have these two been on? And yeah, you're right? like, totally. you know, and then he just gets shot and killed immediately. And you're like, oh man, like, I, <laughs> but like that, that's what I, that's one of the things I love about this character, you know, which is something I also love about it character that's being played by Harrison Ford but we won't get into it but like you start to imagine all these rich histories and these French yes. this guy has all around the world yeah. he's like freaking hula hula from the plastic man cartoons he's got a friend everywhere and they all <laughs> love him so much that they die for him you know into but, that great mist into the great mystery I go first Indy yeah <laughs> yeah Wuhan everybody wants to die for the guy yeah. nobody more than by the way short round Oh, well, uh, well, uh, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Well, we will, yeah. well spe speaking of short round, I think it's a perfect time because I know, Tom, your moment of truth comes in Temple of Doom. We didn't do is. all of our Raiders. We didn't do all of our Raiders moments. Joe, you had another point in Raiders you wanted to bring up. Oh, man. Well, I, I, one of the things that I want to talk about is the, the central tenet of Indiana Jones's character is his fatigue. The fact that he's always tired and he's always worn out. And, you know, he starts out, obviously, he starts out well-dressed with a tie and nice, clean, pressed shirt and everything. And by the end of it, he's all messed up. But one of the things I love most about Raiders is that moment between Indy and Marion on the submarine. She's trying to minister to his hurts. He's been beating up the whole movie. And he's being surly Indy, right? I adore. She flips the mirror and it hits him in the face so hard his howls are heard outside the, sub, outside the submarine. <laughs> And, and she seems to miss it. She's like, what? <laughs> what you and it's like every, it's like every marriage, you know, every relationship we've ever been in. We're, we're in agony and our wife doesn't seem to notice. And, and then they engage in this classic 40s screwball verbal foreplay before he falls asleep. Yeah. It's this sweet, sad, deeply human moment. I just can't loved. get a break, can we? It's like, right. Really we can't, just can't catch a break. Yeah. And I, well, I feel for Mary, but I feel for Indy too, because he's not the man we knew 10 years ago. And, and we, we meet Indy at this moment where he's not his best self. He's not at the pinnacle of Indiness that we should be experiencing. He's a little bit past it. He's tired and yet he's carrying on. And 
circumstances are conspiring against him and yet for him at the same time. And I, I, I just, I love the fact that he gets through all of his adventures with the help of his friends by the skin of his teeth, by rolling 20s more often than anybody has a right to. <laughs> and here's Indiana Jones. He's the guy we all want to be because he wins and almost gets the girl every single time. And it's just yeah. exceedingly brilliant. I will say Raiders of the Lost Ark is the first movie I ever saw where I saw the hero get his butt handed to him by somebody who wasn't the end villain of the whole darn movie. And I'm, I'm talking making about, this up as I go. <laughs> it was a great line. But I'm talking about that classic brawl on the airfield with that big yeah. German mechanic. Like, like, so he's uh, fighting with the one mechanic and the one guy yeah. comes out and he's like, yeah. and this, this big burly Nazi and he doesn't go get a gun. He's like, Oh yeah, I haven't boxed an American in forever. It takes his shirt off, like you know, this guy back in the Kaiser, the Kaiser days was kicking the crap out of people on the regular. You know, he's like, yeah, Floyd come Patterson. on, yeah, yeah, let's go. And Andy just gets hammered and is running around the plane, just trying to stay away from this guy. And every hit, hit lands like a sack of bricks. Everything Andy hits him with, it's like just you know. A, just a fist into sand. It's just no impact whatsoever. And even when Except Indy's for like, one thing. Eh, eh, oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> he turns his legs into water. He hits him. Oh, he yeah. hits him and his legs turn into water. His wobble. And he just goes. He's <laughs> it's just so great. Then like even when when in that scene when Indy you know, turns around, he's like, and that's when you hear like in all these movies, by the way, there is a sonic library to these movies that you exist nowhere else. Like the sound of that whip crack is so distinct. The sound of an indie punch is so distinct. The sound of an indie gunshot is so distinct, right? These things are so part of, a, of, a, of an audio language for this movie. But those hits, when he's punched this German mechanic and he breaks his nose and like he's given everything he's got, three natural 20 haymakers in a row, the guy's like, huh? Pow! <laughs> and he one more time, he goes back down again. And you're like, Andy has got no answer for this guy that doesn't come out of a out of a gun. I mean, he is totally he's totally screwed, you know. But then he gets saved again by circumstance. But that scene, I was like, I can't believe what I'm seeing. The bad guy, who is this guy? He got introduced 30 seconds ago, and he's cleaning Andy out. Like it was just, it was such an incredible scene. I didn't know what to make of it. That is a great thing about Indy that he is so human that. There's no situation in which his match cannot be introduced. You know, there there is there is always a bigger badass. Than Indy. Yeah, oh for sure. But Indy is just resourceful. <laughs> uh, that that's that's what I love about him. That's what I love well, his only true superpower is that the hat always ends up back on his head. Somewhere. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> he, his, he he's not resourceful so much as he's too dumb to know when he's beaten. Like he's brilliant, and yet he is so stubborn. Yeah. He doesn't know when he's beat, and he just keeps getting back up. And that's so Rocky and every other archetype, right? Yeah. Like that American sense of we don't know when we're beat. We just keep getting back up. Tom, before you were talking about, you know, Indy's sidekicks, and, and you mentioned, you know, some particular love for Short Round, who's just a great, a great sidekick. I mean, he's just the best. He, we, you know, we see him. He's got a box tied to his foot to put the pedal down yeah, on the car. You know, like that's he, he's your so introduction to him is he's driving the convertible Duesenberg yeah, as yeah. they're bouncing <laughs> off the you know the right? awnings and. Uh... So I know that your moment of truth comes from Temple of Doom. It's probably the one I have the most problems with, to be honest with you. But I'd love to hear your moment of truth in this because this is a this is a cool movie to talk about because it kind of gets overlooked sometimes. I think so. So what's your what's your moment of truth? It's, it's very often a lot of people's least favorite in the franchise. The reason why it's, for me, at least for a while, it was, you know, one of my favorites was 
I told you about how like I went to go see Raiders with my dad. My experience with Temple of Doom was much different. I, I was playing a game of, you know, pick up basketball with my best friend, John, like when we were kids, you know, and the movie came out and he had seen it and I hadn't. While we're playing a game of horse, basically, he tells me the entire plot of the movie, which was something he would do often. And, <laughs> you know, all right. So he spoiled a lot of movies for me. That's part of his charm, honestly. He's a good dude. But uh, it made me want to go see the movie more. And again, it goes back to like, you start to really envision, okay, like this is going to be a franchise thing. We're going to see like a lot of adventures of Indiana Jones and they're going to be very different. They're going to, you know, have different sort of flavors to them. And like, at that point in time, even before I had seen the movie, I started to like envision this whole universe where, you know, there's a bunch of Indiana Jones stories and we're going to get to see every one of them. So we only got the trilogy, but you know, what are you going to do? You know, we did a lot of creative writing when I was a you know, little kid in elementary school. And yeah, I wrote a little Indiana Jones story and uh, cast the hottest girl in the class is Marion. And I never heard the end of it from my grade school class. It's really what captured my imagination. All right, great. There's a bunch of Indiana Jones stories and I'm going to see them all. You know, so I came into Temple of Doom with that expectation and it was so dark and it was so different. And yeah, you could talk about, you know, all the stereotypes and all that stuff. To me at that point in time, I didn't understand that. So it didn't take away from it in any way. You know, I just saw this like adorable little sidekick guy for me, like, stole part of the movie for me i mean like he's a sidekick but he's got this sort of rich history with indiana jones where he gets involved in the combat like he's a little kid you know you get his backstory eventually from that hilarious scene you know where where willie's you know running into jungle creature after jungle creature uh you get to hear about like you know yeah. where he really came from but you start to envision like they've been on a number of adventures together and like mm -hmm. i kind of want to hear about a lot of that it really set my imagination going. You know, my, my moment of truth with Short Round is like, and this shows to me like another depth to Indiana Jones is, you know, the rescue scene in the temple where, you know, Indy's had the blood force down his throat and he's clearly not himself. He is, you know, the evil guy now, possessed or, you know, whatever the mechanism is. And Short Round's trying his best to save him. Here's like this little kid, you know, who's running around the mine, bouncing off of ladders, and he's, you know, fighting people. He's throwing karate kicks and everything just to get to Indy so he can, he can get him back. You see what happens, and it's brutal. Indy just backhands him to the ground. Yeah, it's hard. That's a hard moment to watch. Hit a kid. It was like, it was really, you know, even at that age, it was difficult to watch. And I'm like, oh, my God. And you just, everything just, time just stopped right there. And what I loved was like the reaction, like does that, you know, of course you see like a look of betrayal on his face, but he gets right back up and he's like, Indy, I love you. And he starts, you know, trying to get to, and he hits him with the torch to bring him back to reality. And boom, he's like, you know, you get the little ruse there where he's like, I'm okay, kid, wink, wink. <laughs> yeah. Which was yeah. wonderful. I'm like, yeah, he's back. What's going to happen now? Boom. Yeah. They lay waste to everything. That's what's going to happen. <laughs> I love that. That was such a moment yeah. of truth for me because it showed like, Indy has this love for this little boy. They have these adventures together. And it was just, like, it just showed so much more depth to this character than like I thought he had. And that's why it's really my moment of truth. For me, Temple of Doom is kind of a tale of two halves because 
like most of the things I don't really care for in the movie occur in the first half of it. Their circuit to Pancot Palace takes a little while to get there, you know, and they're just sort of like rambling. And I found Willie Scott to be a little bit of an annoying character and, you know, she didn't have a lot to offer. And it's like, it's cool to have a character who's not a hard ass in the story, but she, all she did was complain and she wasn't particularly funny about it. So it just kind of bugged me. And to be honest, it's only gotten worse in over time because I know <laughs> this is when you look behind the making of the movie, but I know that Kate Capshaw was in that movie because Steven Spielberg fell in love with her, right? So, so I'm like, so is she really the right person for this role anyway? So there's always that too, right? There is some more than casual racism going on in this movie. And well. sexism. It's 1938. But it's a 1983 or you know portrayal of... of well, 1983 of, is not that much better than 1938. Certain filmmakers today, they can portray this sort of stuff ironically and get away with it because it's ironic. This was on its face. And even if you do the whole, let's adjust for the time, it's still, to a modern audience, it kind of rankles in a way that like nothing in Raiders rankled me with a passage of time. I'm going to defend Willie. I'm going to defend Willie Scott as a character because I find that, that she provides a foil that hasn't been there before, right? Like, I mean, we, we, we come to expect everything that Indy goes through is de rigueur, right? I mean, this is just his experience. And now... Here is somebody that's a normal human being being forced into one of his adventures. And like, this is crazy. This is nuts. And yes, there's the tangential racism of the dinner scene. And there's all this other sorts of stuff that goes on. But what I love about Willie is that she exhibits a kind of uh, internal courage. And I, I always think of the scene where they go down for the first time below the palace and she has to reach in and pull the lever with all the bugs. And She's reaching in there, and him and Short Round, India and Short Round are in this thing with the spikes, and it's coming. And who the heck designs all these things anyway? But, Willie, but we are going, are going to, to die! die right? <laughs> but she reaches in there. God love her. Her nails are yeah, 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 yeah. she's, she's practically yeah, yeah, naked. Oh, yeah. And yeah. she reaches in and pulls the damn thing anyway. Yeah. And, and, and I always go to that moment as uh, when I need to defend Willie, I always go there. And I go, you know what? When the chips were down, this young lady delivered when she had to. And that, yes, that is a fair yes, cop. She's, yeah, that's, she's, that's she's the weakest. She's the weakest. She's no Elsa Schneider. She's no Marion Ravenwood. Yes, I get it. She's there because she's Steven Spielberg's girlfriend. But she also provides a very different vector to the Indiana Jones adventure than, than what we come to expect. And I also, this, this speaks also to, to my moment of truth, which is that, I mean, this film tries to out pulp Raiders, right? Like Raiders was a dime novel. But this goes a little further than the dime novel into the screwball comedy. It's not a better film, but it's a better dime novel because the action is more over the top and the screwball comedy dynamic between Indian Willie is intentionally funnier and less weighty than anything that he and Marion conducted. And this is clearly a romantic, the, the, the romantic interlude that, that Willie and Dr. Jones enjoy, her as a stray conquest to be sure, and they both seem fine with that, but the byplay in the Palace of Pancott after the feast is so totally brilliant. It's almost musical theater, and it's got this point-counterpoint beats, right? Yeah. It's so perfect. It's so perfect, in fact, yeah. that it's paid homage to in the second season of Stranger Things yeah. between Nancy and Jonathan with this whole will they and won't they at Marie's house. The fact that he's chewing the apple that she brings him and this whole, like, you know, years of field research, that back and forth to me is some of the funniest indie that we get some of the most romantic indie that we get. And I think that the, the humor and the romance are what raise Temple to be on a par with the other movies. And, and I will say this, I saw Temple in the theater before I ever saw Raiders. My introduction to Indiana Jones is Fortune and Glory. 
Okay. And so I have a very special place in my heart for Temple of Doom. And I know that it's the least woke of the films. And I know that it's the least tight of the films. And yet it still resonates and speaks to me, you know, 35 years later. That's awesome. That's awesome. As regards Willie Scott, yes, she's annoying. Bill is absolutely right. She's so annoying. But she, I mean, she's supposed to be. That's her character. That's, that's I mean, true, yes. She, you know, she's meant to be annoying. There is a moment with Willie. It's when they have seen the first poor victim's heart ripped out. You know, she screams and then she, she masters herself. And that moment was, I, I thought, really powerful. Yeah. And, and, and yeah. really kind of... She's tougher than she seems. Yeah, she's yes. tougher than she seems. And, 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 it, and it did make me like her. Joe, you mentioned Fortune and Glory. One of the reasons I think that I like Temple of Doom less than the other movies is that Indy's character is called into question. He's a fortune hunter more than an archaeologist. Yeah. Yeah. And I didn't like that very much. And that, that, <laughs> that, that may be, a, you know, an immature reaction, but it troubles me. Indy is flawed for sure. I mean, you know, there, there's no doubt yeah. that when he says this belongs in a museum, he's talking about a museum that can be visited by white people. When Joe said this is the least woke of the films, I have to say, I love that moment when Indy's character gets called into question because Indy's like, he's given this whole table a read about the thuggy cult and the history. And the guy turns around and goes, well, hang on one second, uh, Dr. Jones. If I seem to recall, <laughs> like starts airing out his bad laundry and, and Indy's like, yeah, okay, well, and like his It wasn't my hands. His reaction. It was my so misunderstanding. Great. Yeah. But his yeah. reaction is when, like, he's had to defend himself like this before because he knows his hands are not entirely clean, right? I did kind of like that. Like, as a kid, I was like, oh, no, Indy's sullied. I do like that moment in it. Chris, you and I are on opposite sides of this particular moment. but I, I, did, I, I do, I do like, but I, I get where you're coming from. I get where well, you're coming from. His character's not entirely clean from the first scene of the movie. What's he trying to do in the first bit of it? He's trying to trade a diamond for some, like, ancient ashes and stuff like that. Like, that's crazy. The Dr. <laughs> Jones who says this belongs in a museum does not do that. This Indiana Jones is, he's Howard Carter, right? And he's, this is 1930s Indiana Jones. He is looking out for either a place in history or his own self-aggrandizement or whatever else. Archaeology is not a search for truth. It's a search for fact and fame. And we know that about him. And he's equal parts, the minds of Solomon, you know what I mean? All, all this stuff. And he is an adventurer. And that's what we love so much about him. This guy, when he's confronted with having to grade papers, he climbs out the damn window. This is <laughs> yeah. not a guy who's an academic at heart. This is yeah. a guy who's an adventurer. Yeah. I kind of broke my own rules and got a little negative about the movie. But I have to say that I think when you get to that, when things start heating up in Pancot Palace, you know, especially like, or will they or won't they kind of scene, um, and they get into, you know, the death trap and all that. From then on, it really starts to pick up quite a lot because a pretty, pretty effective adventure movie. The moment that you mentioned, Tom, it's not just like a, Oh, and by the way, from the sidelines, here comes something to save him. Like we see short round, like goes through like numerous trials and travails to get to Indy. Like his dedication is that deep, which is really, really cool to see. And when he gets that backhand, it's one of those things where for me personally in stories, a point of weakness for me as an audience member is I hate it. And it's not like it's a bad thing. It's just me personally. I hate seeing heroes I love in moments where they're, they're in prison where they're brainwashed against the good guys. Like seeing the heroes so subverted like that always gets under my skin in a deep way. So when I watch Temple of Doom, in my mind, 
that part of the story where Indy is is brainwashed and is backhanding his, his closest friend, that may be like 35 minutes of the movie. Like it feels like it goes on forever. And it's like, it does, yeah. it's like three minutes long, it, you know? It but, certainly does in the novels. Like in yeah, the novelization, you, that's like a whole chapter and you're like, yeah. what? But to your point though, Tom, like that section is so short, but we feel it so much. Yes. You know, and why do we feel it so much? Because of all the stuff that's around it. You know, I will say again, you know, the other part of Temple that I that I love so much. I mean, apart from like the the whole last act of action has some of the greatest action set pieces of any indie movie. You know, the the mine cart chase is just fantastic. The cut rope bridge is fantastic. Just these great iconic moments. That sacrifice scene where Mola Ram pulls the heart out of this poor guy's chest and drops him into this, you know, living into this pit of molten lava and flame. As a kid, that was as hard to watch as, as watching the end of Raiders. I mean, it was that was a oh, yeah. and it was a dark scene, really tough. But also, that was the one time in these three movies where we see the height of supernatural power, and it's not in the hands of the good guys. It's in the hands of the bad guys, and they're they're wielding it exactly as they intend to wield it, and that's horrifying to behold. I mean, that was just really as a kid, I was like. Oh man, this is like now we see what the stakes are. You know, like this guy can export this wherever he wants. It's not just like, oh, will they get the power? They've got the power. Now, how are you going to do that? And that's for me, that was a pretty chilling turnaround. Then to see Indy pulled into that power was that was hard. You know, it was hard to watch. The thing about this film is, is that you know, and I've, I've already mentioned what I enjoyed is my moment of truth, but probably a secondary moment of truth, which we talk about Indiana Jones as a fortune hunter. When he goes down and he gets the Shankara stone, he's going to bring it back to the village. And he gets up and he hears the whip and the child cry. He can get away. He's good to go. He's got the stone. He's ready to roll. And he's like, you know what? I can't do it. Yeah. He cannot. He cannot do it. He's incapable of leaving anyone behind and leaving innocents behind to be tortured. He cannot do it. And he says, you know what? It's going to get nasty, but we got to go back down there. And, and so that, to me, we talk about the impugning of the character of Indiana Jones. This yeah. is the elevation of the character of Indiana Jones, where he moves beyond fortune hunter and into hero is when he hears a child being tortured and he can't, he can't countenance that. Even yeah. more and, so than in the third movie, uh, when oh, it's his father that is right. the motivation. This, this is yeah. the pinnacle of the Indiana Jones character is he is a hero. Because he can't leave innocence to be hurt. Does anybody else feel deeply uncomfortable? Like when you see the guy's hand go over the, and you're like, I, I can almost feel it in my chest. Like when I. <laughs> oh, wait, 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 wait. Yeah, Mola Ram's got his fingers in his chest. He's just trying yeah. to dimple the flesh a little bit. You're like, <laughs> I've had my sternum opened and, you know, I've had open heart surgery. And so every time I watch that, I, it tingles more than a little. <laughs> yeah, phantom pain from it. But, you know, Chris, what would you say is your favorite part of Temple of Doom? Because I know you and I often talk about the shortcomings of this movie, but, but, but there's a lot to love here as well. What, what would you say is your favorite part of this film? Actually, I, I love the opening sequence. And, and I'm, probably un, I'm probably not joined by many in that. But it, it was so unexpected. When I saw this movie in the theater, I was just like, what the F is going on? I mean, it's just nuts. It's crazy, but it's awesome. It's super yeah. awesome. And I'm pretty positive the first person in the punches in this movie is a woman. Yes. It's completely innocent. <laughs> the cigarette girl. He just like lays her out. You're like, oh my God. Just you know, bam. 
Yeah, I, I, he's like totally delirious. It's like a missed punch, and it's she's in the wrong place at the wrong time. It just gets a stiff arm. I'm like, oh, it's real bad. And and, and, and yeah, yeah, he's he's been poisoned. He's he's all messed up. But oof, <laughs> and 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 he has played for laughs. Yeah, and that's uncomfortable. But what a great scene, I, you know? Like they're chasing the diamond through the ice and. It, it, it's just running behind it, the gong for yeah it's so right? clever and <laughs> the, the musical number itself performed by willie scott is just fun yeah, yeah. I, I really i really love that opening scene in retrospect i didn't the first time i saw it it was it was very much a throwback to just you know, anything mean, goes man well, well, I mean, there was a time when movies all had those kinds of scenes, right? Those big, like, you know, Busby Berkeley kind of like big musical numbers, and they just don't watch the movies anymore. So yeah. they decided we're just going to bring one back just to kind of remind you of this is what yesteryear sort of looked like. And so it is kind of cool. It almost like as a matter of as a matter of archaeology itself, they decided right. to put one of these scenes in there, which is which is this fantastic. is the this is the of we're talking about. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah. You're going to have to go this. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Nuhachi. Ah, it's Nuhachi. good. It's, it's it's really good stuff. So we've talked about Raiders, we've talked about Temple. Let's round this out and let's let's go to Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, which is a movie that has an enormous amount of love to it. I remember when I went to see it in the theater and my good friend Derek, who's the world's biggest Indiana Jones fan, had just seen it, the showing before ours, and like my whole crew from high school being assembled and he was already there. We're like, oh, Derek already saw it. And he goes, oh no, I'm seeing it again with you guys right now. Like he, he just like, he was just gonna watch on rotation. He loved it so much. Like, all right, like it's already got Derek's seal of approval. This movie's gonna just kick A and take names. He so didn't pay it, for a second ticket, did he? Yeah, oh yeah, he did. He didn't hide in the bathroom? No, 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 he was- I he was, You moral crusader, you. I can't believe a libertarian <laughs> didn't do that. <laughs> No, he was like, he was like, so like, like, no, 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 like, we're just going to do this. It's, it's, he would do it for Indy for sure. Joe, I know your moment of truth comes from Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Yes. So I'd love for you to tell us about what your moment of truth is, because there's a lot to unpack with this movie too. So lay, lay it on us. I was 14 when this movie came out and uh, was virtually apoplectic with the anticipation for the better part of a year knowing it was coming. And it was my first opening night experience, hat unabashedly on head and I, I loved every second of it. I felt it was perfect. Maybe uh, two thirds to three quarters of the way through the film, Indiana Jones takes on a tank and wins, apparently plummeting to his death in the process. And his father, and uh, you've got um, Sala, <laughs> and you know, everyone's looking over the cliff, yeah. right? As, as Jones oh, clambers yeah. to safety and panting, hatless, clothes in this customary disabile. Jones joins him. He's, he's like looking over the cliff, wondering what everyone's looking at, right? And, and, they, and they notice. They, they engage in some surprise joy, and then they run off to continue in the adventure. And Jones staggers, and he falls into the dust. And at this point in the theater, I could feel the end of the movie coming. I could feel the end of the franchise coming. And his father even says to him in Sean Connery mode, why are you resting when we're so near the end? And, and Spielberg, he's not a subtle filmmaker, we feel the weight of all of his adventures weighing Indiana down, down at this moment. The guy is wiped out and his hat rolls back to him during the mournful flute version of his theme, as if to say, not yet. One of the greatest aspects of the Indiana Jones character is his humanity. I've mentioned it before. His weariness, his lack of superhuman physical powers other than a willingness to get the, you know what, kicked out of him on the regular. The man begins his movies in his pressed shirt and his tie and promptly gets transformed into a human punching bag in tatters. His exhaustion is his signature 
and his willingness to fight through that exhaustion to finish the job is the last flourish to that signature. That moment when he's sitting there, he's beyond human endurance and the hat rolls back to him and says, you're not done yet. <laughs> yeah. That to me is the absolute coda to this series and the moment at which we know that Indiana Jones, who has had enough, he's fought everything that there is to fight, but he's not done. His last crusade is not yet over. And, and, and it takes his hat wear coming to back to him on the verge of a cliff to tell us we've got half an hour left. Saddle up. Indy's not done yet. I, I love that so much. And when I was in the theater, I was near tears as a 14-year-old watching that and thinking to myself, I've got 15 minutes left of Indiana Jones. I know because his hat told me. And here we go. <laughs> and, and, I, and I just, that to me is my, yeah. my moment of truth for all of these three movies is Indiana Jones's fedora telling us that we've got some more to do here, gang. Not a lot more, but just enough. So let's get, let's get it done. Oh, it's, so, it's so good. It's so Joe, good. do you think that attaches to the uh, sort of broadly pro-religious mindset of these films? In Raiders, we, we see that Judaism is real. Yeah. <laughs> and in Last Crusade, Crusade, we see that Christianity is real. And his father, his father slaps him, right? And he says, like, that's, that's blasphemy. blasphemy. Yeah. Right. right? <laughs> blasphemy. I blame my shelf. Yeah, exactly. And, and in Temple of Doom, we see that a particular ugly version of Hinduism is real. I, I guess we can infer from the, you know, the power of this thuggy cult that the rest of Hinduism is real. And that, to me, is, is like a really a really essential part of, uh, I think, these movies' lasting appeal, that it can validate what we believe. I think one of the hallmarks of all this, Chris, is that Indy never sets out to disprove something, and he never accidentally disproves something. If anything, he just proves that something is more real than you actually thought. I mean, he's like, right. you know, he's like, Marcus, you know me, I don't believe in a lot of superstitious hocus pocus. I mean, like, he wants to be a skeptic, even though he is routinely confronted with things that should he's completely. Not. In the beginning of Raiders, he suggests that he is, right? He, he wants but, to be. Yeah, he wants to be, but he regularly runs into things that, that will just obliterate any shred of skepticism. I and mean, he knows deep down, like, these things matter. They're for real. I've held glowing rocks in my hand. I saw, you know, I saw the arc. I, I mean, all these things. And the point where in Crusade, there's this great moment where they're in the underground portion of Venice and they're looking for signs to get to the tomb of that night. She goes, what, is it this? And, and, and he's like, yeah, no, you know, no. She goes, you sure? He goes, pretty sure. And it's a picture of the arc on the wall. And he's like, he's already referred, like, yeah, no. I know what that is. <laughs> like, that's not what we're looking for. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's so funny. But I, I will say to, to answer Chris's question, which is, is there a supernatural component? Absolutely. And I think that if there's an arc, if there is a narrative arc to Indiana Jones, it is from skepticism to belief, okay. right? And, and he gets to the point at the end where he does the leap from the lion's head and he believes. He has obviously been raised as a Christian, but I have a hard time ascribing religious overtones to it beyond the, the reality that Indiana Jones is less than the forces around him. 
And he embraces that at the end. And he embraces it when he decides that the Grail can save his father and everything else. But the Last Crusade, to me, hits home when Donovan says, it's time to ask yourself what you believe. Right? Indiana Jones has always believed in fact, not truth. He's always believed in fortune and glory or it belongs in a museum versus universal truths. And yet here he is confronted with having to decide what matters to him beyond the temporal. And he says, you know what? I have this background and this upbringing to fall back on and his, his father's faith to fall back on. And he does it. And it's, it's pretty wild. The one thing I really like about the end of Crusade was when they're in the chamber with the, all the various cups and, you know, the, the wonderful, he chose poorly, he chose wisely kind of moment. <laughs> when Donovan, you know, Elsa sets him up, right? He gets this fake chalice, he drinks out of it, and he's totally like, oh, it's more beautiful than I imagined. He's completely showing just how out of his depth he is. And he drinks it, right? All of a sudden he starts like aging prematurely. He's like, what's happening? And he turns to Elsa and we see his white hair sprouting out of his head as he's rapidly aging. Elsa's look, that's the first time I've seen any, anybody in the series, even including the guy who had his heart taken out of him in Temple, look that terrified. Like she was, I mean, her reaction when he's turning old in front of her and turning to dust, she is shrieking so full throttle. That is like, she shows the fear I always felt in these movies at the end when something went sideways supernaturally. It's like, she really captured it for me. And I love that moment because she's so, she's so, it just it is an elemental terror coming out of her. And I love that. I think it's, I think it's great. <laughs> Don't forget, Bill, in a Latin alphabet, Jehovah begins with an I. This particular movie takes place in 1938. We know that at least in this chapter of Indiana Jones's life, these kinds of ventures are going to come to an end because World War II is about to start. It doesn't make sense to have these kinds of ventures happening when there's a world war going on. This kind of adventure is definitely of a kind before a much bigger problem arises, right? Yeah. I thought it was a really great decision to include Indy's father in this. We can talk about his relationship with his father. And, and like, we see where Indy comes from in this movie. We get his origin story in that wonderful prologue scene when he's a kid in Utah and he's on that circus train. And like, and he's like, what are the, some of the influences that drive him to become this? But in that is when we meet, we meet his father, right? And we get these little snippets of like what his relationship with Henry Jones is like. And, and there are these great moments where he's really not a great father to him. Oh, no. Um, you know, you left right when you became interesting. Yeah. Oh, cut that line. That is the most horrifying line of dialogue yeah. ever. Yeah, it's awful. Well, great. We have time now. Let's talk. What do you want to say? And, and he's like, uh, uh, and it's like, I got, I like any father worth their salt would know you can't just start talking. He goes, well, great. What are you worried about? And, and, and it's like, oh, Henry, dude, you suck as a father, right? And, and Let's you really, get to work. Like, it's a good thing that the Zeppelin starts turning back to Germany and they have to get in the biplane takeoff. Because if it had gone on much longer, we would have seen Indy really wounded, right? What are you supposed to say? You don't walk around with a checklist of 13 deep things you want to talk with your father about because you've never had a conversation with them in the last 20 years, right? You can't just go into some memory bank and pull it out. It's like, no, the thing you want to say is, I wish we had the last 20 years together and we didn't. And you know, he already said it, so his dad doesn't, and it still bounces off his father. And so he's stuck there. And it's, it's a really tough moment to watch for poor Indy. And we talk about the vulnerability of his humanity, that, that comes off in a very nuanced way in a movie that doesn't do a lot of nuance. And, and I, I love that. But, you know, the cool thing is, is that that stuff carries on in the last acts of the movie where we think Indy's gone over the cliff when we all know he hasn't. You know, Henry Jones 
you know, senior is like, oh no, he's like, there's so many things I wanted to say. Five minutes would have been enough. And then Indy shows up again. He's like, oh, I thought I lost you, boy. And does he take those five minutes? No, he does not. Right? Of course <laughs> like, not. No. <laughs> he does not. And, and honestly, nobody does. Humans like, everybody, never do. Dude, this is the time. Like, open up them. And he doesn't because he's like, no, Sean, we got to go. Get your hat and move. I think what was cool, though, is that we do finally get a resolution to this right at the end when the temple of the grail is falling apart. The grail's on this precipice. Indy's fingers are painfully just grazing the lip of the cup. He's trying immediately to do the exact same thing that just cost Elsa her life moments before, trying to grab the cup. He can't not go for this cup. It's right there. And that's when his father looks at him and, and, and he says, Indiana, let it go. And it's the first time in the movie he calls him by by his self-given moniker, you know? Yes, it is. But it's so meaningful that he chooses then to actually acknowledge his son on his son's terms. And like, that's the first big moment where it's like, we have finally see these two guys have made a connection that matters. And it's in that moment. And I really felt that because as a guy who I never had a particularly close relationship with my father. So I kind of felt that when I watched this movie, there was just that distance between the two people, you know, they, they weren't as close as they wanted to be or could be. And when Henry just turns around and he acknowledges his son on those terms, it's a really powerful thing. And it doesn't last, right? Soon afterwards, he calls him Junior, and there's, you no, know, we named the dog Indiana and all that sort of stuff. And he, he reverts dog. back. Yeah, the <laughs> dog. Yeah. Sal is like laughing, like, dude, shut up. But like, it reverts back to that humorous kind of zone. It's going to sound trite, but yes, Indy lost the Holy Grail. He got his father. Ultimately, the father matters more. Clearly, Indiana Jones is struggling with the fact that after his mother's death his father was distant and like he didn't get the kind of parental love that he might have wanted and whatever but the relationship between him and his father is the praxis for so much of the pathos of last crusade and what drives that oh, yeah and it makes it so wonderful to watch and if they had cast anybody other than sean connery i don't know who else they could have cast for that and it would have had it work so perfectly it works without a hitch. Yeah, you know what I love about that too with the relationship? You get the sense that maybe like Indy was dragged kicking and screaming into this academia thing and like <laughs> stuff like he wanted to be a boxer. drilled it into him. <laughs> like that's great cool. <laughs> yeah, 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 oh yeah. Yeah. I feel for the guy, but like, you know, when his dad in Greek, you know, like no. yeah. 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 he drilled it into yeah. him. <laughs> you, you, you know, you guys are uh have any effect on me. I I have long considered Last Crusade the most cynical of the indie movies. Really? Uh, really? Interesting. Because, I mean, the, the casting of Sean Connery is just such a star play at that moment in time. Yeah, yeah it was. And, and <laughs> you know, every bit, everything about that story, it was just so slick, so slick. It made me feel manipulated, I guess, in a way. But maybe that's also because I'm trying not to project my own relationship with my father, which virtually everybody else has already brought up. <laughs> so, so maybe I'm wrong. Well, I, I think, you know, when you look at Crusade, uh, and this also counts for Temple as well, is and what separates them so much from Raiders is the fact that when they did Raiders, they were in undiscovered country. They were reviving the serial pulps of the 1930s and 40s, which nobody had ever done. And they were doing it in a way that they most of that movie was shot with only three or four takes per per shot. They did not sit there and, you know, it had a big budget, 
but they didn't know if it was going to work or not. And they, there was kind of a quick and dirty aspect to how they made that. So why they relied so much on practical effects rather than the special effects of the day and, and actual stunt work and that sort of stuff. Obviously, they didn't have CGI, but they did have, you know, animation and that sort of thing. And they only saved it for one scene, which is the arc scene at the very end, right? Yeah. But everything else was done almost the way you would have done it back in those days. And part of it was from necessity. By the time, but that movie was such a huge hit that when you had Temple and when you had Crusade, you kind of had this safety cushion of knowing that, you know, you would have to really, really, really seriously go wildly off the rails for this at least to not be a big hit in the box office. By the time you get to Crusade, you know that no matter what the story really is, you're still going to make a mint off this movie. So when you talk about the slickness of it, it's like there's not that fear of, well, are we going to fail or not? Like, if you know you're going to, you know it's going to, be a success in that way so that does affect the way in which you approach your craft there there's the fear and and the doing something new isn't quite there like it was for raiders and i think it's why raiders feels a little bit different it just does it has a little bit of a, an edge and an energy and a roughness and a rawness to it that none of the other stuff ever has and and never could have because they all know that they are trading on a success that the first one never ever had and I mean, talk about that sli- slickness. Yes, I think I think Temple's a slicker movie, and I think Crusade is a very slick movie. And I kind of wish it was a little more scuffed up. I wish it was a yeah. little bit more rougher. Yeah. You know, I, I, I totally hear you. I wish it had that. I'm behind you on that one, Bill. I mean, like it felt the most polished to me, and like I really like the rough edges of these stories and the yeah. production and everything. I mean, that's why I, I did adore Last Crusade, but it's my least favorite of the trilogy. Really. Interesting. Tom, I, I totally hear you. Like in the, the card playing scene, the Temple of Doom with Short Round and Indy, there is so much revealed there and yet not revealed. The first two movies had so much of that. Yeah. Maybe this is just a, you know, a sad function of elaboration. When you make sequels, you're going to sort of mine that stuff out and exhaust it, maybe. I mean, look at Star Wars. There's a reason why in the end credits, they are literally riding off into the sunset. Right. With this third right. movie. I mean, they, this definitely was meant to be kind of like, you know what? We're, we're turning the page on this. This feels like the end for now. And the movie always has that in mind, even if we don't know it, the filmmakers knew it and it's in that movie. So yeah, it's not about unveiling new things necessarily. The big thing, the big unveilment is let's talk about his father, but he's there. It's not the tip of the iceberg kind of thing we have with everything else where it's like you refer to it and then the, we fill in the details on our own. No, no, no. We get, more deep perhaps more detail than we actually want we see yeah like look at how much origin story you get like boom 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 you know it's like you, you, yeah, you, yeah. they're you, very where effective the scenes come from where yeah. the bull yeah come from yeah, you know, like, right. all this very stuff. effective yeah, yeah. Like, whoa, 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 whoa. hold on hold on <laughs> i like a little mystery here <laughs> we're being given like the making of indie and you're like maybe we didn't want it. it's, it's a great scene but you're like i kind of like not knowing you know if you had to conceive of anybody's father indiana jones wouldn't it be james bond I mean, if you really come right down to it, and maybe not even James Bond, but maybe Daniel Dravitt, uh, Sean Connery's character from Man Who Would Be King. But like the fact that Sean Connery's his dad, it gives you a dimension of striving to Indiana Jones and the fact that he's never going to live up to his father. There's I'm seeing the- Alan Quartermain as his dad. Alan Quartermain and the Lost Cities <laughs> of Gold. Like, I get it. I do. Or Scrooge McDuck. I get it. Like, whatever. But Indiana Jones, there's a insecurity to him. There's a feeling that he's never going to be the greatest hero. Even though he's our greatest hero, we watch him and 
he doesn't feel that. He feels that he's doesn't match up, that he well, doesn't measure up. And he feels that. And that drives who he is as a character. And that's you're describing the you're describing the human condition. And and yes, that that is what makes Indy such a good character. He is simply human. Before we wrap up, a final thought. 19 years after our heroes literally rode into the sunset during the end credits of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, uh, audience received the next installment in the series, uh, which we didn't really talk about tonight, but Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, which came out in 2008. And while Kingdom of the Crystal Skull was a pretty big commercial success, and you can look up the numbers if you don't believe me, the movie most definitely polarized its audience in ways that the three previous movies never even came close to doing. Critics generally liked it, but certain cohorts of fans, they didn't just dislike the movie, they freaking hated it. I mean, hate with a capital H. You know, they nominated it for various worst of lists, they vowed an embargo on some of its cast members, and they even did that thing that fans do nowadays where they claim that the movie had somehow retroactively canceled like one of the best parts of their cinematic childhood. So personally, I never quite understood this reaction to the movie. It is by no means a perfect piece of cinema, and it certainly is not my favorite Indiana Jones outing, but it's not my least favorite either. It is, I think, a fun action movie that suffers from the same kind of shortcomings we've seen in every other Indiana Jones movie to some extent. Uh, namely, a sense of adventure and circumstance that dances along the edge between belief and disbelief until inevitably at one point, it goes a step too far in the wrong direction. Yeah, but perhaps Kingdom of the Crystal Skull's greatest flaw really is that it stands alongside predecessors that had already become things of legend by the time this fourth movie hit the screen. At that point, it had set itself up to an impossible standard against which to be compared, no matter how well executed it could or should have been. And that may have been an argument for never even making the movie in the first place, to be honest with you. In some ways, I think Kingdom of the Crystal Skull feels more like a reboot than a sequel, which might be why it feels so far removed from its predecessors. You know, the funny thing about all this is that the whole reason why we even have an Indiana Jones is because a fan of something old revered and bygone decided to resurrect it and to pay it homage by giving it a new life by way of a new interpretation. That fan proved that sometimes the best way you can show how much you truly love something is to incorporate it in your own creative process and give it new life. You know, all franchises must end at some point there and their energies inevitably hit their limit. But even if certain stories must die, the traditions they embody never have to. Uh, and I think that's something interesting to keep in mind uh, as we have a fourth movie that maybe not everybody liked. We have a fifth movie coming out that not everybody is you know, ready to see. The reality is that we will always have Indiana Jones. We will always love Indiana Jones and Indy will always be with us. So Chris, Joe, Tom, thanks for dropping in today. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks to everyone who's listening and we'll see you again here on Moments of Truth. Bye now. Moments of Truth is hosted by Bill Coffin, Chris Crenshaw, Tom Hespos, and Joe Pace. This podcast is edited by Derek Eisenhart. The Moments of Truth theme is a mashup of The Clermont by Flash Fluherty and a little help from a Texas Instruments Speak and Spell. For more Moments of Truth, be sure to subscribe to this show wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And for hundreds of additional write-ups of my favorite movies, please visit BillCoffin.com.